This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Keisner's The Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnhem Chapter 16 And so the second week began, and all was harmony. The arrival of Mr. Wilkins, instead of, as three of the party had feared, and the fourth had only been protected from fearing by her burning faith and the effect on him of San Salvatore, disturbing such harmony as there was, increased it. He fitted in. He was determined to please, and he did please. He was most amiable to his wife, not only in public, which she was used to, but in private, when he certainly wouldn't have been if he hadn't wanted to. He did want to. He was so much obliged to her, so much pleased with her, for making him acquainted with Lady Caroline, that he felt really fond of her. Also proud. For there must be, he reflected, a good deal more in her than she had supposed, for Lady Caroline to have become so intimate with her, and so affectionate. And the more he treated her as though she were really very nice, the more Lottie expanded and became really very nice, and the more he, affected in his turn, became really very nice himself, so that they went round and round, not in a vicious but in a highly virtuous circle. Positively, for him, Mellersh petted her. There was at no time much pet in Mellersh, because he was by nature a cool man. Yet such was the influence on him of, as Lottie supposed, San Salvatore, that in this second week he sometimes pinched both her ears, one after the other, instead of only one. And Lottie, marveling at such rapidly developing affectionateness, wondered what he would do should he continue at this rate in the third week, when her supply of ears would have come to an end. He was particularly nice about the washstand, and genuinely desirous of not taking up too much of the space in the small bedroom. Quick to respond, Lottie was even more desirous not to be in his way, and the room became the scene of many an affectionate combat de générosité, each of which left them more pleased with each other than ever. He did not again have a bath in the bathroom, though it was mended and ready for him, but got up and went down every morning to the sea, and in spite of the cool nights making the water cold, early had his dip as a man should, and came up to breakfast rubbing his hands and feeling, as he told Mrs. Fisher, prepared for anything. Lottie's belief in the irresistible influence of the heavenly atmosphere of San Salvatore being thus obviously justified, and Mr. Wilkins, whom Rose knew as alarming, and Scrap had pictured as icily unkind, being so evidently a changed man, both Rose and Scrap began to think there might after all be something in what Lottie insisted on, and that San Salvatore 
did work purgingly on the character. They were the more inclined to think so in that they too felt a working going on inside themselves. They felt more cleared, both of them, that second week. Scrap in her thoughts, many of which were now quite nice thoughts, real amiable ones about her parents and relations, with a glimmer in them of recognition of the extraordinary benefits she had received at the hands of, what, fate, providence? Anyhow, of something, and of how, having received them, she had misused them by failing to be happy. And Rose, in her bosom, which though it still yearned, yearned to some purpose, for she was reaching the conclusion that merely inactively to yearn was of no use at all, and that she must either by some means stop her yearning, or give it at least a chance, remote but still a chance, of being quieted by writing to Frederick and asking him to come out. If Mr. Wilkins could be changed, thought Rose, why not Frederick? How wonderful it would be, how too wonderful, if the place worked on him too, and were able to make them even a little understand each other, even a little be friends. Rose, so far had loosening and disintegration gone on in her character, was now beginning to think her obstinate straight-lacedness about his books and her austere absorption in good works had been foolish and perhaps even wrong. He was her husband, and she had frightened him away. She had frightened love away, precious love, and that couldn't be good. Was not Lottie right when she said the other day that nothing at all except love mattered? Nothing certainly seemed much use unless it was built up on love. But once frightened away, could it ever come back? Yes, it might in that beauty. It might, in the atmosphere of happiness, Lottie and San Salvatore seemed between them to have spread round like some divine infection. She had, however, to get him there first, and he certainly couldn't be got there if she didn't write and tell him where she was. She would write. She must write. For if she did, there was at least a chance of his coming— and if she didn't, there was manifestly none. And then, once here, in this loveliness, with everything so soft and kind and sweet all round, it would be easier to tell him, to try and explain, to ask for something different, for at least an attempt at something different in their lives in the future instead of the blankness of separation, the cold, oh, the cold, of nothing at all but the great windiness of faith, the great bleakness of works. Why, one person in the world, one single person belonging to one, of one's very own, to talk to, to take care of, to love, to be interested in, was worth more than all the speeches on platforms and the compliments of chairmen in the world. It was also worth more. Rose couldn't help it. The thought would come, 
than all the prayers. These thoughts were not head thoughts like Scraps, who was altogether free from yearnings, but bosom thoughts. They lodged in the bosom. It was in the bosom that Rose ached, and felt so dreadfully lonely. And when her courage failed her, as it did on most days, and it seemed impossible to write to Frederick, she would look at Mr. Wilkins and revive. There he was, a changed man. There he was, going into that small, uncomfortable room every night, that room whose proximities had been Lottie's only misgiving, and coming out of it in the morning, and Lottie coming out of it too, both of them as unclouded and as nice to each other as when they went in. And hadn't he, so critical at home, Lottie had told her, of the least thing going wrong, emerged from the bath catastrophe as untouched in spirit as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were untouched in body when they emerged from the fire. Miracles were happening in this place. If they could happen to Mr. Wilkins, why not to Frederick? She got up quickly. Yes, she would write. She would go and write to him at once. But suppose... She paused. Suppose he didn't answer. Suppose he didn't even answer. And she sat down again to think a little longer. In these hesitations did Rose spend most of the second week. Then there was Mrs. Fisher... Her restlessness increased that second week. It increased to such an extent that she might just as well not have had her private sitting-room at all, for she could no longer sit. Not for ten minutes together could Mrs. Fisher sit. And added to the restlessness, as the days of the second week proceeded on their way, she had a curious sensation which worried her of rising sap. She knew the feeling, because she sometimes had it in childhood, in specially swift springs, when the lilacs and the syringes seemed to rush out into bloom in a single night. But it was strange to have it again after over fifty years. She would have liked to remark on the sensation to someone, but she was ashamed. It was such an absurd sensation at her age. Yet oftener and oftener, and every day more and more, did Mrs. Fisher have a ridiculous feeling, as if she were presently going to burgeon. Sternly she tried to frown the unseemly sensation down. Burgeon, indeed. She had heard of dried staffs, pieces of mere dead wood suddenly putting forth fresh leaves, but only in legend. She was not in legend. She knew perfectly what was due to herself. Dignity demanded that she should have nothing to do with fresh leaves at her age. And yet there it was, the feeling that presently, that at any moment now, she might crop out all green. Mrs. Fisher was upset. There were many things she disliked more than anything else, and one was when the elderly imagined they felt young 
and behaved accordingly. Of course they only imagined it. They were only deceiving themselves. But how deplorable were the results. She herself had grown old as people should grow old, steadily and firmly. No interruptions, no belated afterglows and spasmodic returns. If, after all these years, she were now going to be deluded into some sort of unsuitable breaking out, how humiliating. Indeed, she was thankful that second week that Kate Lumley was not there. It would be most unpleasant, should anything different occur in her behavior, to have Kate looking on. Kate had known her all her life. She felt she could let herself go. Here Mrs. Fisher frowned at the book she was vainly trying to concentrate on, for where did that expression come from? Much less painfully before strangers than before an old friend. Old friends, reflected Mrs. Fisher, who hoped she was reading, compare one constantly with what one used to be. They're always doing it if one develops. They're surprised at development. They hark back. They expect motionlessness after, say, fifty, to the end of one's days. That, thought Mrs. Fisher, her eyes going steadily, line by line, down the page, and not a word of it getting into her consciousness, is foolish of friends. It is condemning one to a premature death. One should continue, of course with dignity, to develop, however old one may be. She had nothing against developing, against further ripeness, because as long as one was alive, one was not dead, obviously decided Mrs. Fisher, and development, change, ripening, were life. What she would dislike would be unripening, going back to something green. She would dislike it intensely. And this is what she felt she was on the brink of doing. Naturally, it made her very uneasy, and only in constant movement could she find distraction. Increasingly restless, and no longer able to confine herself to her battlements, she wandered more and more frequently, and also aimlessly, in and out of the top garden, to the growing surprise of Scrap, especially when she found that all Mrs. Fisher did was to stare for a few minutes at the view, pick a few dead leaves off the rose bushes, and go away again. In Mr. Wilkins' conversation she found temporary relief, but though he joined her whenever he could, he was not always there, for he spread his attentions judiciously among the three ladies, and when he was somewhere else, she had to face and manage her thoughts as best she could by herself. Perhaps it was the excess of light and color at San Salvatore, which made every other place seem dark and black. And Prince of Wales Terrace did seem a very dark black spot to have to go back to. A dark, narrow street, and her house dark and narrow as the street, with nothing really living or young in it. The goldfish could hardly be called living, 
or at most not more than half living, and were certainly not young. And except for them there were only the maids, and they were dusty old things. Dusty old things. Mrs. Fisher paused in her thoughts, arrested by the strange expression. Where had it come from? How was it possible for it to come at all? It might have been one of Mrs. Wilkins, in its levity, its almost slang. Perhaps it was one of hers, and she had heard her say it and unconsciously caught it from her. If so, this was both serious and disgusting. That the foolish creature should penetrate into Mrs. Fisher's very mind and establish her personality there, the personality which was still, in spite of the harmony apparently existing between her and her intelligent husband, so alien to Mrs. Fisher's own, so far removed from what she understood and liked, and infect her with her undesirable phrases, was most disturbing. Never in her life before had such a sentence come into Mrs. Fisher's head. Never in her life before had she thought of her maids, or of anybody else, as dusty old things. Her maids were not dusty old things. They were most respectable, neat women, who were allowed the use of the bathroom every Saturday night. Elderly, certainly. But then so was she. So was her house. So was her furniture. So were her goldfish. They were all elderly, as they should be, together. But there was a great difference between being elderly and being a dusty old thing. How true it was what Ruskin said, that evil communications corrupt good manners. But did Ruskin say it? On second thoughts, she was not sure but it was just the sort of thing he would have said if he had said it, and in any case it was true. Merely hearing Mrs. Wilkins' evil communications at meals, she did not listen, she avoided listening, yet it was evident she had heard, those communications which, in that they so often were at once vulgar, indelicate, and profane, and always, she was sorry to say, laughed at by Lady Caroline, must be classed as evil, was spoiling her own mental manners. Soon she might not only think but say. How terrible that would be! If that were the form her breaking out was going to take, the form of unseemly speech, Mrs. Fisher was afraid she would hardly, with any degree of composure, be able to bear it. At this stage, Mrs. Fisher wished more than ever that she were able to talk over her strange feelings with someone who would understand. There was, however, no one who would understand, except Mrs. Wilkins herself. She would. She would know at once, Mrs. Fisher was sure, what she felt like. But this was impossible. It would be as abject as begging the very microbe that was infecting one for protection against its disease. She continued, accordingly, 
to bear her sensations in silence, and was driven by them into that frequent aimless appearing in the top garden, which presently roused even Scrap's attention. Scrap had noticed it and vaguely wondered at it for some time, before Mr. Wilkins inquired of her one morning, as he arranged her cushions for her. He had established the daily assisting of Lady Caroline into her chair as his special privilege, whether there was anything the matter with Mrs. Fisher. At that moment Mrs. Fisher was standing by the eastern parapet, shading her eyes and carefully scrutinizing the distant white houses of Mitsago. They could see her through the branches of the Daphnes. "'I don't know,' said Scrap. "'She is a lady, I take it,' said Mr. Wilkins, "'who would be unlikely to have anything on her mind?' "'I should imagine so,' said Scrap, smiling. "'If she has, and her restlessness appears to suggest it, "'I should be more than glad to assist her with advice.' I am sure you would be most kind. Of course she has her own legal adviser, but he is not on the spot. I am. And a lawyer on the spot, said Mr. Wilkins, who endeavoured to make his conversation when he talked to Lady Caroline light, aware that one must be light with young ladies, is worth two in—we won't be ordinary and complete the proverb, but— say London. You should ask her. Ask her if she needs assistance? Would you advise it? Would it not be a little, a little delicate to touch on such a question? The question whether or no a lady has something on her mind. Perhaps she will tell you if you go and talk to her. I think it must be lonely to be Mrs. Fisher. You are all thoughtfulness and consideration, declared Mr. Wilkins, wishing, for the first time in his life, that he were a foreigner so that he might respectfully kiss her hand on withdrawing to go obediently and relieve Mrs. Fisher's loneliness. It was wonderful what a variety of exits from her corner Scrap contrived for Mr. Wilkins. Each morning she found a different one, which sent him off pleased after he had arranged her cushions for her. She allowed him to arrange the cushions because she instantly had discovered, the very first five minutes of the very first evening, that her fears lest he should cling to her and stare in dreadful admiration were baseless. Mr. Wilkins did not admire like that. It was not only, she instinctively felt, not in him, but if it had been, he would not have dared to in her case. He was all respectfulness. She could direct his movements in regard to herself with the raising of an eyelash. His one concern was to obey. She had been prepared to like him, if he would only be so obliging as not to admire her. And she did like him. She did not forget his moving defencelessness the first morning in his towel, 
and he amused her. And he was kind to Lottie. It is true she liked him most when he wasn't there, but then she usually liked everybody most when they weren't there. Certainly he did seem to be one of those men, rare in her experience, who never looked at a woman from the predatory angle. The comfort of this, the simplification it brought into the relations of the party, was immense. From this point of view, Mr. Wilkins was simply ideal. He was unique and precious. Whenever she thought of him, and was perhaps inclined to dwell on the aspects of him that were a little boring, she remembered this and murmured, But what a treasure! Indeed, it was Mr. Wilkins' one aim during his stay at San Salvatore to be a treasure. At all costs, the three ladies who were not his wife must like him and trust him. Then presently, when trouble arose in their lives, and in what lives did not trouble sooner or later arise, they would recollect how reliable he was and how sympathetic, and turn to him for advice. Ladies with something on their minds were exactly what he wanted. Lady Caroline, he judged, had nothing on hers at the moment, but so much beauty, for he could not but see what was evident, must have had its difficulties in the past, and would have more of them before it had done. In the past he had not been at hand, in the future he hoped to be. And meanwhile, the behavior of Mrs. Fisher the next in importance of the ladies, from the professional point of view, showed definite promise. It was almost certain that Mrs. Fisher had something on her mind. He had been observing her attentively, and it was almost certain. With the third, with Mrs. Arbuthnot, he had up to this made least headway, for she was so very retiring and quiet. But, might not this very retiringness, this tendency to avoid the others and spend her time alone, indicate that she too was troubled? If so, he was her man. He would cultivate her. He would follow her and sit with her and encourage her to tell him about herself. Arbuthnot, he understood from Lottie, was a British Museum official, Nothing specially important at present, but Mr. Wilkins regarded it as his business to know all sorts and kinds. Besides, there was promotion. Arbuthnot, promoted, might become very much worthwhile. As for Lottie, she was charming. She really had all the qualities he had credited her with during his courtship and they had been, it appeared, merely in abeyance since. His early impressions of her were now being endorsed by the affection and even admiration Lady Caroline showed for her. Lady Caroline Dester was the last person, he was sure, to be mistaken on such a subject. Her knowledge of the world, her constant association with only the best, must make her quite unerring. 
Lottie was evidently, then, that which before marriage he had believed her to be. She was valuable. She certainly had been most valuable in introducing him to Lady Caroline and Mrs. Fisher. A man in his profession could be immensely helped by a clever and attractive wife. Why had she not been attractive sooner? Why this sudden flowering? Mr. Wilkins began, too, to believe that there was something peculiar, as Lottie had almost at once informed him, in the atmosphere of San Salvatore. It promoted expansion. It brought out dormant qualities. And, feeling more and more pleased, and even charmed by his wife, and very content with the progress he was making with the two others, and hopeful of progress to be made with the retiring third, Mr. Wilkins could not remember ever having had such an agreeable holiday. The only thing that might perhaps be bettered was the way they would call him Mr. Wilkins. Nobody said Mr. Mellersh Wilkins. Yet he had introduced himself to Lady Caroline, he flinched a little on remembering the circumstances, as Mellersh Wilkins. Still, this was a small matter, not enough to worry about. He would be foolish if in such a place and such society he worried about anything. He was not even worrying about what the holiday was costing, and had made up his mind to pay not only his own expenses, but his wife's as well, and surprise her at the end, by presenting her with her nest egg as intact as when she started. And just the knowledge that he was preparing a happy surprise for her made him feel warmer than ever towards her. In fact, Mr. Wilkins, who had begun by being consciously and according to plan on his best behavior, remained on it unconsciously, and with no effort at all. And meanwhile the beautiful golden days were dropping gently from the second week, one by one, equal in beauty with those of the first, and the scent of bean-fields in flower on the hillside behind the village came across to San Salvatore whenever the air moved. In the garden that second week, the poet's-eyed Narcissus disappeared out the long grass at the edge of the zigzag path, and wild gladiolus, slender and rose-colored, came in their stead. White pinks bloomed in the borders, filling the whole place with their smoky-sweet smell, and a bush nobody had noticed burst into glory and fragrance, and it was a purple lilac bush. Such a jumble of spring and summer was not to be believed in, except by those who dwelt in those gardens. Everything seemed to be out together. All the things crowded into one month, which in England are spread penuriously over six. Even primroses were found one day by Mrs. Wilkins in a cold corner up in the hills, and when she brought them down to the geraniums and heliotrope of San Salvatore, they looked quite shy. End of chapter 16